Athletes take your mark. Get set. It's time for the Addict to Athlete podcast. Hey, everybody out there. Coach Lou Robinson here at your service. I hope everyone's having a fantastic fall. What a beautiful time of year this is. I want to give a special thanks and shout out to everyone who's been downloading, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. It helps tremendously. If you'd be so inclined to leave us a review, there's a lot on there, but the more we have, the stronger this podcast can be and the further reach we can have. I hope that you're enjoying it, and please check out our resources, addict2athlete.org. You'll find amazing content on there. You're going to find all of our backlogged podcasts. You're going to find our online store, content about the program, how to become a certified addictions sober coach with Team Addict to Athlete to start your own chapter, and so much more. Check it out on addict2athlete.org. Our team store, amazing. We have tons of uh, ideas for gifts and all kinds of stuff for anyone who may be trying to overcome addiction and want that team support. We have our extracurricular recovery uh, clothing line out there. Great stuff to kind of show that, uh, yeah, there are more things out there than simply drugs and alcohol and addictions and compulsions. But hey, let's thank our Patreon subscribers. You Patreon subscribers, thank you so much. I hope you're enjoying the uh, weekly content that's being uh, dropped every every week on the Extracurricular Recovery Playbook. For those of you that may not be aware, each week we get uh, two, sometimes three uh, or more episodes of the Extracurricular Recovery Playbook by which you can strengthen your own recovery, maybe even start the process helps you overcome addictions, trauma, any obstacle in life that you may be facing, you can use this audio content to help strengthen your resolve, to help get you through those tough times. It is uh, it is an amazing resource and many of you are taking advantage of that. And it gets you a little bit of time with Coach Blue. Uh, I enjoy the messages that we've been getting uh, received through there. Uh, so it's a great resource to have if you are maybe thinking about getting some help, maybe thinking about getting to that starting line to help overcome your addictions, you can sign up for Patreon uh, and support Addict Athletes Podcast and receive all that bonus content for as little as $2 a month. Think about that for a second. $2 a month gives you all the bonus content. Anything above that qualifies you for all kinds of exclusive deals, perks, offers, merchandise. We have our new shirt that's going to be uh, released here shortly. Uh, for all of you Patreon subscribers, as you re-up your, your donations, it helps uh, helps this podcast get pushed forward. But I want to give a special thanks and shout out to our super fans. They are the one and only Jerem Thurston, Holly Davies, Scott Foster, Coach Chris Williams, Brett Frew, Coach Tara Butson, Steve Riggs, and the Warrior Within podcast and personal development with Sensei KP. I know Sensei KP takes a, a great deal of time working that extracurricular recovery playbook, so shout out to uh, KP. And of course, Chelsea Olson, our rookie level subscribers. I love these guys. Thank you so much, Kenny Roseman and Earl Dyer. Our pro-level subscribers, we've got Gary Thurston and Josh Hansen. And our championship-level subscribers, thank you so much, Shad and Freya Robison and the Robison family, Ron and Dee Loesch, and Tracy Whitby. Uh, you guys are all special folks in my heart. Thank you so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon subscriber, jump on patreon.com slash addicttoathlete. Well, today, athletes, you're going to get Coach Blue solo. Um, I'm excited to talk about today's, uh, I guess, happenings in, in a manner that will, I hope, 
open some some doors for some folks, maybe open up some ideas, and really hopefully get some understanding out there on kind of what is attached to any kind of addiction and addiction recovery. We're going to talk about some of the most common uh, co-occurring disorders um, that usually affect individuals suffering with addiction. Very rarely is it that they just have an addiction. More often than not, there is another issue or multiple issues that accompany this, and they call them co-occurring disorders. We're going to jump into that, but I need to tell you that one thing that uh, I really am grateful for on Team Addict to Athlete is that myself, uh, our athletic director, Marissa, and a lot of our coaches and whatnot, they also have backgrounds in mental health. And the neat thing is that uh, when we started Team Addict to Athlete, um, we were doing it under the premise of assisting people to overcome addiction and to fight some of these co-occurring disorders, to bring awareness to them so that they can get help for it. And as a therapist myself and an addictions counselor, being duly licensed, I felt like we could establish quite a bit of help for a lot of people. That's why the Extracurricular Recovery Playbook on the Patreon page is so beneficial. It is, to a certain degree, a treatment program that you get you know, once, twice, sometimes three times a week. So the neat thing about that is we we are very aware of what we're doing. We're sensitive to some of the details that uh, could affect individuals in recovery. And I want to talk about and describe maybe more in depth some of the most common co-occurring disorders that I've seen in people who have been uh, seeking addiction treatment because you, the listener, could be experiencing this. You could have a loved one that has one of these. And if you're unaware or you think that it's just the addiction and that's the only thing you're dealing with, well, then you might miss an underlying issue that could potentially, uh, I guess, resolve itself into a relapse. And so often individuals require um, a a lot of... uh, a lot of attention when they first start surrendering themselves to get their addictions under control. And I know that with every treatment program, every uh, you know facility I've worked at, even the one that I had ownership in, there were requirements that made us have to diagnose individuals with co-occurring disorders. Very, very rarely would an insurance company ever allow someone to be simply diagnosed with a substance use disorder issue. Um, and like I said, nine times out of ten, there are many more co-occurring disorders. I personally do not like the concept of having to diagnose people. Um, and I've gone through several episodes of life where I, it's kind of ebbed and flowed on like my own personal understanding of what it means for the person receiving the diagnosis. I've seen some people that welcome it with open arms because it's going to bring more awareness. I've seen some that that diagnosis has actually crushed their spirit. And so by doing this, it's to bring some, I guess, attention to the significance behind being delicate with this, but also delivering it in a way that is not showing a disturbance to the point that the individual receiving the diagnosis is broken or that they have a, a extension of a disease. It is simply and utterly only to bring understanding so that they can adjust some of their own playbook, so to speak, on how to navigate issues and situations in the world. Marissa and I are doing a very deep dive on on, uh, on individuals, adults and children on the spectrum, you know, talking about autistic features, um, Asperger's, things of that nature. 
We're taking this so seriously because we see it so often that that's going to be a podcast in and of itself. And I hope that you'll tune in because I'm noticing an increase and a very strong rise in relationships coming in my private practice of therapy, I'm specifically trying to work through marriage counseling. And I'm finding that one of the spouse uh, typically is on the spectrum. So we're going to jump into that. But this is a little bit different. Today, we're going to talk about Um, The most common co-occurring disorders that I've seen with substance abuse issues. Um, Well, there are so many emotional issues that can have like impacts on an individual's life throughout the experience of life that the addiction typically comes as a result of maybe some of the maladaptive issues or situations that the person's experienced. And so with a situation of depression or whatnot that we'll talk about, typically we'll find a substance that helps suppress that. So you got to think about, you know, uh, these issues. Um, They include things like low self-esteem, you know, guilt, grief, anger management problems. Uh, These issues were generally considered just symptoms of uh, the disorder itself. Um, But when we're going to talk about them in terms of, you know, these these co-occurring disorders, um, I'm going to be referring to the actual diagnosis, not what leads to them, but the symptoms and whatnot that specifically are attached with some of these disorders. And we're going to start with one of the most common issues and diagnosis that I see with addiction recovery and those who come in seeking help for, for treatment and uh, for addiction, and that is generalized anxiety disorder. So this one is um, this one's a tough one because there's so many components to it. So let's talk about what generalized anxiety disorder is. So generalized anxiety disorder is, is uh, diagnosed in individuals who experience reoccurring or frequent anxiety or panic attacks, along with, with symptoms such as sleep disorders, um, sleep disturbances, restlessness, and maybe even some, some functional impairment. Living with frequent anxiety can definitely lead people to rely on drugs and alcohol uh, for a number of reasons, obviously, right? And while some may abuse prescription anxiety medications like Xanax, others, they tend to rely on alcohol or illicit drugs to kind of socially enhance the skills that they need to develop or maybe cope with anxiety symptoms that they feel. But I've noticed one thing, listeners, and that is that long-term use of any kind of, of uh, anti-anxiety medication is not the way to go. There's, a, there's a, a special kind of evil inside that medication if it's taken too long without the proper channels of seeking assistance. And what I mean by that is anxiety, I found, can only be conquered and truly put to rest if you experience it and understand it for what it is, not for what you've believed it to be. Now, now let's wrap our heads around that for a minute. Anxiety is this uncontrollable fear about the future. It's about something that can't be seen. It's generalized. You don't put your finger on it. Sometimes it's specific, but more often than not, it's just this feeling you have. And if we constantly medicate it with that kind of medication, it won't make you feel good. It won't make you feel bad. It makes you feel numb you don't have any feelings. And I can understand why that medication is important. If you have a tremendous tragedy in life, so a very bad trauma that, that you experience, it makes a lot of sense that you may want to have something to knock it off its kilter, to get it out of your mind, even temporarily until you can seek assistance. But the problem comes because the medication does such a good job 
that it puts that uh, that that trauma, it puts that issue on a shelf and it just waits. And as you numb yourself out constantly and as the addiction begins to rise and as we believe and have more anxiety because that fear we have about facing whatever trauma, whatever giant is standing before us, gets more and more intense. We take more and more medication. We don't realize that we're stronger than that giant. And it takes a lot of trust and a lot of faith in people and therapists and counselors and mentors and clergy to help you slay that giant. The problem with this comes with that equalization of fear, anxiety, depression, all the stuff that kind of typically goes along with this. And we forget how strong we authentically are. I've noticed that when we use tools around us, like the ability to see and have faith instead of fear, like we talked about a million times, to be able to trust a mentor, to be able to trust that what you're experiencing isn't the way that it was supposed to be, that you're willing to ask for help through a therapist, through counselors, through guidance, um, that you can get through this stuff. Long-term use of that medication for generalized anxiety will put it on the back burner and it will become this monster of an issue that was probably just a trauma to begin with. It can become so hard. But here's the thing, right? Is It's not that it's a lack of courage. It's a lack of, of, uh, of ability to trust in others to help get you through this. Um, it takes a lot of courage to show up for counseling and therapy and for addiction recovery. And that in and of itself can create anxiety. That's why I hope that people share this podcast so that people can understand that there are a lot of good counselors and therapists out there that can help you. But generalized anxiety disorder is one of the first and most common things I see in folks struggling with addiction. So the second most common disorder I see um, in this situation, in this industry, is bipolar disorder. Now, a lot of you have heard of bipolar. Um, many of you may not know exactly what it is, and I think it's important because some people think, well, I'm having mood swings and whatnot, so I must be bipolar. we got to understand that there's a very, there's a very strong line that uh, I want you guys to start understanding, and that's Sometimes common experiences and common feelings and things that are normal can be taken out of context if we are in a mindset that we are broken. And so there's a lot of folks I've worked with that have that have simple mood swings. Shoot, I wake up every once in a while kind of feeling like, man, I think I want to just like cancel all my appointments and stay in bed. That doesn't mean I'm bipolar. That means I just would rather be doing something else and maybe have a little bit of doubt. Um, and I don't think that that's, that's really a, uh, I don't know, a, a degree of, of interest when there's so much good that also could be produced. Um, I think with bipolar, we have to be a little bit more aware of the longevity of it, the frequency of it. And I think that we got to know what it is. So individuals with bipolar disorder um, are, are partially susceptible to drug and alcohol and addiction um, because of the chemical imbalance that happens within the brain. See, that brain issue, that problem within there, it, uh, it causes the individual to suffer from, uh, from things like uncontrollable moods and experience uh, uncontrollable like, like situations uh, that are very emotionally based, severe episodes of depression and mania. You've heard this, right? Many individuals who live with bipolar disorder, they self-medicate to reduce the intensity of these, uh, of these episodes. And typically, 
It's to suppress the depression, not the mania, which is kind of an interesting concept. Um, And that ultimately leads to an increase of other uh, symptoms as well within an addiction. So let's break this down a little bit, okay? The bipolar we're talking about here, uh, because there's two, um, bipolar one and bipolar two, we're talking about the bipolar with with mania and with depression. Now, mania, when someone is manic, it's not like they are out there like hulking out and and uh, running and gunning, although it can happen. It's just they have an increased kind of like optimism. They have an increased desire to get things done. It's almost like they have um, a stimulant, right? It doesn't have to be like a raging against the machine. It can be that they find themselves doing things, being more outgoing, taking on more projects, maybe maybe being more optimistic about the future, maybe having better relationships with friends and family. But then the depression kicks in. And a lot of times, and I've noticed that even though this tends to cycle, it's not as rapid as most people think. It's not like, you know, and it's very rare. I guess it could happen. I just haven't seen it as frequently. And that's, you know, you have a mania for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you have depression, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's a little bit more like spread out than that. Um, there would probably be other issues that I'd want to look at before we do bipolar on a situation like that. Bipolar was a very common diagnosis that I saw when I worked uh, early in my career where we had a doctor that it didn't matter what you experienced, you could have generalized anxiety and you'd walk out bipolar. And I'll never understand why that was other than we could call it. And it was years like that. And I got thinking maybe there's some kickbacks coming from medications or something. But that was the joke. The person would walk in with with, uh, with maybe some major depression and walk out bipolar, which, you know, is interesting. I could walk in maybe with an eating disorder, could come out with bipolar. And I'm like, you got to be careful with that. We're not, not a one diagnosis fits all situation. But the depression is typically where we see more of the of the heavier mood. And it's like, well, what is going on? Because you were so gung-ho and, and filling out all these job applications and ready to take on the world and so optimistic. And now I can't even get you on a bed. Um, that's a typical sign of what it looks like and what it feels like. More often than not, the person experiencing doesn't realize it's happening. It's just this bizarre kind of flow. And it usually takes an outsider to kind of look at it from its perspective and say, I'm noticing patterns here. I've seen some of these patterns with a bipolar cycle that typically um, range and, and start to kind of fall around changing of the seasons, which is kind of interesting. I noticed it when we worked early on in addiction recovery where we would get an increase of clientele um, around September, October, November. And then by you know by, by March, April, May, uh, we'd start having some people graduate and move on, do great things. And then the summer would hit and then the fall. And also I started realizing that with changing of the season, there seems to also be this, this cycle of bipolar. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some that's a little bit less frequent than that and some that are right on the money. But I've noticed this to be kind of the key. And the hardest thing about being bipolar is that it's just a label right now. We don't understand what it really means. There are so many things we can do to help with bipolar. Bipolar comes with with talk therapy, with uh, DBT, with a lot of therapeutic modalities that can help kind of get you into a mindset and being more mindful of this, being able to track these things for the 
friends and families and, and loved ones around you to know that you have bipolar is crucial because then they're not left guessing. And there will be some times where this is where relapses happen. This is where self-doubt kicks in. And because we're so afraid that, that our loved ones are going to go back to using and drinking, we kind of put the pressure on them. We actually kind of kick in and induce some of these symptoms to kind of uh, be a little bit more throttled forward than to be throttled back. And so it's important to understand what bipolar disorder is. So maybe even to go in a little bit more detail, maybe we can talk about some of the signs of bipolar disorder. Um, some of the signs and symptoms of bipolar, they kind of vary. And many of these symptoms can also be caused by other conditions, which we're going to get into. But the signs of bipolar can generally be divided into that, that situation of being manic or being depressed. And so the seven signs of mania, they would kind of include things like feeling over happy or even high for long periods of time, maybe having a, a decreased need for sleep, talking very fast, uh, often having racing thoughts, feeling extremely restless or impulsive. That has to do with spending too. People with, with mania exhibiting through bipolar, they, they are very impulsive and they spend money quite frequently. They become easily distracted, maybe having some overconfidence in their abilities and engaging in risky behaviors like impulsive sex, maybe gambling, maybe spending life savings, going on those huge spending sprees, which makes a lot of sense. And people enjoy the mania side of this who have this because they really do feel like they're on top of the world. But eventually the pendulum swings and like mania, depression can cause other symptoms as well. But the things that you'll see from someone experiencing depression in a bipolar disorder will look like feelings of, of sadness or hopelessness for long periods of time, maybe withdrawing from friends or family, losing interests in activities they once enjoyed. We see this on Team Addict Athlete with, with some folks that, that experience bipolar where they'll be gung-ho for experiences and then you know they'll stop showing up for events and for races. And it's really not their fault as much as it is that depression through bipolar that's keeping them from doing things they loved. You'll see maybe a change in appetite, maybe a severe fatigue or lack of energy. It's very, again, polar opposite from the mania side. They'll have problems with memory, concentration, and decision-making. They typically talk about being in, an, in a fog and they may even think about or attempt suicide or have a preoccupation with death. And so you can see why it's important to understand the significance behind bipolar because there's such a, a difference in it um, that being able to understand what it is is, 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 is almost, it's almost like I don't know, life or death to a certain degree. But like I said, there are two degrees of bipolar. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's bipolar 1 and there's bipolar 2. And bipolar 1, that is the classic form of bipolar disorder. It's called that manic depression, right? Bipolar 1 is the uh, manic phase being clear, the depression stage being, being clear. Maybe a person's behavior and, uh, and the shifts in mood are extreme, and their behavior quickly escalates until they're out of control. Um, to have bipolar 1, a person must have a manic episode uh, in order to have this diagnosis. Maybe the event to be considered in a manic episode would look like uh, shifts in mood behaviors that are unlike the person's usual behavior. And it must be present for most of the day, nearly every day during the episode. So it's kind of interesting, right? It's got to last at least one week or be so extreme that the person needs immediate hospital care. 
So people with bipolar one typically have depressive episodes as well, but the depressive episode isn't required to make that diagnosis. So it's kind of interesting. Obviously for bipolar one, you must have the mania. So bipolar two is considered more common than bipolar one. Uh, it also involves depressive symptoms, but its manic symptoms are, are much less severe and uh, are usually called like hypomanic symptoms. Hypomania often becomes worse without treatment, and that's what we've seen, and the person can become severely manic or depressed. Bipolar 2 is harder for people to see in themselves. It's often up to friends or loved ones to encourage someone to get help for this kind of bipolar. So it's interesting. You know, there are actually more rare types of the bipolar family, but we won't get into that because of sake of time. But if you're interested, look them up because uh, there's some interesting concepts there. Bipolar treatment is interesting because uh, you can go through things of medication, behavioral therapy, obviously substance abuse treatment and therapy. Um, but there's a lot that can be done there. But there's also a lot that has to be understood. And so it shouldn't be something that's taken lightly. We should definitely look at it through the lenses of, of uh, wanting to help the individual and not just label it. And really kind of boil it down to understand the, the, the cycles that the individual goes through and so on. So the third most common is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, something a lot of you have heard about. Post-traumatic stress disorder develops after a person experiences events that cause extreme stress and in some cases are life-threatening. So some examples are when people experience violent crimes or car accidents or death or war for that matter. Uh, typically individuals with PTSD, they experience flashbacks, maybe night terrors, and some of these people choose to relieve their symptoms of this with alcohol or drugs, and it kind of makes sense as to why. And that can absolutely lead to further disruption in emotional balancing, in sleep disorders and, dis and, and disruptions, and so on and so forth. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a heavy, heavy diagnosis, and it breaks my heart because it's one that you know absolutely without a doubt the person who's been diagnosed with it has been through some severe stuff have seen and been a part of some of the worst of the worst. And it really is heartbreaking when you see this start to come out in, in an individual. But it's also liberating to a certain degree because with therapeutic interventions, it can be um, it can be pushed through. It can be eliminated and it can be solved. But this takes a lot of work because diving into post-traumatic stress disorder, we start looking at the reoccurrence of being exposed to such trauma because talking about it can actually do this. So let's dive into some of the symptoms uh, within post-traumatic stress disorder. And it may start within one month of a tragic event. Um, sometimes the symptoms may not appear until years after the event. The symptoms cause significant problems in social situations, in work situations, in relationships, so on and so forth. And it can definitely interfere with an individual's ability to go about their normal daily tasks. Uh, PTSD symptoms are generally grouped into what, what is four types of, uh, of uh, I guess, attributes. And that's, that's uh, the intrusive memories, the avoidance, the negative changes in thinking and mood, and the changes in physical and emotional reactions. 
Um, and these symptoms can vary over time and vary from person to person. So it, although we'll discuss some of them, uh, it kind of depends on the person in and of themselves. But some of these um, intrusive memories that they have as a symptom may include things like the reoccurrence or, or unwanted uh, distressing memories of the traumatic event itself, maybe reliving the trauma uh, event as it was happening again. Those are called flashbacks. Um, maybe having upsetting dreams or nightmares about the traumatic event, and severe emotional distress or physical reactions to something that reminds them of the traumatic event, uh, and, and things like avoiding, right? Trying to avoid thinking or talking about a traumatic event, avoiding places or activities or people that remind them of the traumatic event. And that, again, a symptom of changing, negative changes in, in thinking and mood. Well, those would look like symptoms relating to negative thoughts about themselves, about other people or the world, maybe some hopelessness about the future, memory problems, including remembering important uh, aspects of the traumatic event, maybe difficulty maintaining close relationships with people, feeling detached uh, from friends and family is a big one. Uh, the lack of interest in activities maybe they once enjoyed, maybe just feeling emotionally numb. And again, seeing a change in physical and emotional reactions, you may see them being easily started, startled or frightened, always being on guard for danger, uh, maybe participating in self-destructive behaviors, again, such as drinking or using drugs or driving too fast, doing kind of the crazy stuff. They're going to have trouble sleeping, maybe trouble concentrating um, irritability, anger, outbursts, aggressive behaviors, maybe some overwhelming feelings of shame or guilt. The sad thing about this is that it is traumatic in and of itself at times to discuss this. And so uh, there is that, that principal therapeutic modality that I've been trained and certified in called EMDR therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It helps the individual process trauma, and it needs to be done by a qualified professional. Um, I was kind of skeptic about this. I was very kind of like, yeah, I don't know about it until it was performed on me and it worked. And after I saw some of the benefits of it, I went and got trained in it. And it doesn't, it doesn't take away the memory. It takes away the emotions that are attached to the trauma. It kind of moves what you negatively kind of process the event to be and puts in its place a, a mindset of, of perseverance and overcome maybe a positive mindset. It is an interesting thing, but I've seen in the uh, four years now since I've been trained and certified in it, that many people who have experienced EMDR with a, with a professional have not quite gotten what they needed from it. And some of it has been because they kind of break down the process. And so you can actually be re-traumatized severely if it's done improperly. And I've seen that on several occasions, um, one of which too was just recent where a client of mine was expressing some of the trauma that she experienced and the therapist had her repeat the, uh, the trauma in detail um, while performing EMDR and did not do anything to replace a negative thought with a positive one. And it was very odd and strange. And I'm not sure why that individual did that. But you got to be careful because people with post-traumatic stress disorder or complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is even more intense, um, they can be re-exposed to trauma if they are not handled with care. And so you've got to know what you're doing and you can't use them as, as test subjects to, to master your, your skill set. 
Uh, it takes a lot of practice. And so if there's a therapist out there that's listening to this and you like EMDR, make sure that you are certified, that you are fluent in it. You know the processes, you know it because great damage can come if we do it wrong with our, with our clients. Post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the most common things we see um, with addiction diagnoses as well. Moving on uh, to the next one I see quite frequently. Uh, this is the personality disorders and mood disorders. So personality and mood disorders such as OCD, that's obsessive compulsive disorder, maybe maybe borderline personality disorder or, or uh, BPD, can be characterized by uh, a variety of symptoms. Um, the, um, the borderline personality disorder is among the most common of the mood disorders and personality disorders that I see. This is severe mood swings, intense emotional imbalance. Um, often people uh, have difficulty maintaining relationships with others and turn to drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. So within the personality disorders and mood disorders, I want to focus specifically on the, uh, the borderline personality disorder because I see that within the addiction world frequently. And it's, again, it's a heavy diagnosis because of the manner by which it is manifested. And so to jump in a little bit about what borderline personality disorder is, let's take a look at what it is at its core. So borderline personality disorder is a serious mental illness that uh, centers on the inability to manage emotions effectively. Uh, this disorder occurs in the context of relationships. Sometimes all relationships are affected. Sometimes only one is affected. It kind of depends on the individual, but usually begins during adolescence and early adulthood. Uh, while some people with uh, borderline personality disorder are high functioning in certain settings, their private lives may be in absolute turmoil. Um, most people who have uh, borderline personality disorder suffer from um, problems regulating their emotions and their thoughts. They are impulsive and sometimes reckless, um, and they're usually uh, experiencing unstable relationships. Um, other disorders like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance abuse, things of that nature, can, uh, they can exist with borderline the thing that I've been kind of interested in is the causes of borderline personality disorder. And research um, on the cause and risk factors um, still say that it's in the early stages, you know, but I've seen and read some situations where, uh, you know, clinicians kind of agree that genetic and environmental influences are more than likely to be part of the situation uh, of an individual with borderline personality disorder. So certain events in childhood can definitely play a role into develop, developing the disorder, such as maybe some emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, loss, maybe some neglect, bullying um, can maybe contribute to it. Um, but the current theory is that some people are more likely to develop uh, borderline personality disorder due to biological uh, situations and genetics. And the harmful childhood experiences can further increase the risk. So it's almost like, you know, a precursor that if you have it and you experience those things, which a lot of children do, unfortunately, then it could open up those floodgates uh, later on. So what does it really mean? Well, you know, borderline, uh, you know, the term borderline has definitely been the subject of debate. And the interesting thing about it is uh, it's used to, to, it used to be considered um, 
on a, a spectrum between psychosis and neurosis. And the name stuck even though it doesn't really describe the condition very well, which is interesting. Um, the term borderline also has a history of misuse, which you've probably heard before, and there's some prejudice associated with that. Um, but it is a clinical diagnosis, not a judgment, which I think sometimes uh, we kind of uh, you know, do do uh, an injustice to. So we got to be careful when we when we talk about those kind of things. It is a it is a challenging disorder to get help with because it's almost as if the person, when they're experiencing episodes, will be pushing you away at the same time trying to attract you and bring you in. So it's kind of like you don't know where you stand with some of these folks. It's really hard to kind of like understand what they need from you because at one point they could love you and be there for you and the next minute they are just angry and and vicious and it's kind of hard because you feel like you are literally going kind of crazy yourself. Um so I think that what we need to look at is that there are symptoms within borderline personality disorder that that folks kind of experience. And the first one would be that fear of abandonment. People with borderline are often terrified about being abandoned or left alone. Um, even sometimes uh, as, a, I don't know, as a loved one, it, it may be arriving home late for work uh, or going away for the weekend may trigger some very intense fear. And that can prompt some really intense Um, frantic efforts to keep the person close. They may beg, they may clean, they may start fights, they may track down um, people that you'll be with and and try to hurt those relationships or maybe even physically block the individual from leaving. Unfortunately, this behavior often, uh, you know, pushes the person away, then keeps them there. And so this fear of abandonment within uh, the the BPD diagnosis is very real. Um, Number two, unstable relationships. People with uh, borderline personality disorder tend to have relationships that are intense and short-lived. You may fall in love quickly if you have this, believing that each new person that they have come into their life is the one who will make them feel whole and complete, only to be quickly disappointed. So those relationships either seem to be perfect or horrible. There's not a lot of middle ground there. So those folks with, with uh, borderline personality disorder feel like their their lovers, their friends, their family members may feel like they have the emotional whiplash happening from time to time as a result of the rapid mood swings and the uh, the uh, idolization um, from you know d- to like anger and hate to love and want. So <clears throat> number three, there are definitely unclear or shifting, I guess, thoughts about their self-image. Um, when you have borderline personality disorder, your sense of self is typically unstable. So sometimes you may feel good about yourself, but other times you may hate yourself or even view yourself as maybe being evil. You probably don't have a clear idea of who you are or what you want in life. And as a result, you know, people with borderline personality disorder may feel um, like they, you know, change their jobs frequently, their friends frequently, their lovers frequently, their values, their goals uh, frequently, or even or even change their sexual identity. And so they have a very unclear or shifting self-image. Number four, they're impulsive. Maybe there's some self-destructive behavior. 
Um, they may engage in harmful, sensation-seeking behaviors, especially when they're upset. So you may see some impulsive spending um, on things that they can't afford. You may see some binge eating, some reckless driving, some shoplifting, some, some risky sexual behavior. Um, they, again, may overdo it with drugs and alcohol. These risky behaviors may help them feel better in the moment, but they hurt them in the long run. Number five symptoms, they, they are uh, prone to self-harm. And this is an interesting thing because uh, suicidal behavior and deliberate self-harm is very common in people with borderline personality disorder. The suicidal behavior includes thinking about suicide, maybe making gestures or threats, or actually carrying out an attempt. Self-harm, on the other hand, encompasses all the attempts to hurt themselves without um, committing suicide in and of itself. So common forms of that that uh, I've seen people with, uh, with borderline personality disorder do is to self-harm, maybe cut or burn themselves. So self-harm is a, is, a heavy, is a heavy symptom to this. There are extreme mood swings in borderline personality disorder. Unstable emotions and moods are common. Um, uh, one moment they may feel happy. The next minute they might feel despondent. Little things that other people brush off can quickly send them into emotional tailspin. So mood swings are intense and they uh, tend to pass fairly quickly. Um, unlike uh, the emotional swings or, or depression of bipolar, these are pretty fast. Uh, they usually last only a few minutes to a few hours. So those mood, strings, mood swings are very extreme. There's a chronic feeling of emptiness, and people with borderline personality disorder often talk to me about feelings of emptiness, um, that there's this hole or a void like, inside of them. At the extreme, they feel as if nothing or no one will ever be able to feel. Um, the, the feeling is uncomfortable, as they describe it, and really, they try to fill that void with drugs and alcohol, food, sex, and then nothing really satisfies. Borderline personality disorder also exhibits explosive anger, and they may struggle with intense anger and a short temper. You may you may uh, have trouble seeing seeing them uh, be able to control this because they have trouble controlling themselves. Their fuse is lit. They start yelling, throwing things, become completely enraged. And the important thing to note is that the anger isn't always directed outward. Sometimes that anger is directed inward. And uh, there are definitely feelings of suspicion um, or out of touch with reality. And what I mean by this is people with borderline personality disorder often struggle with paranoia or suspicious thoughts like others' motives. Um, when they're under stress, they may even lose touch with reality, maybe some disassociation. They may feel foggy, spaced out, or, or even kind of like uh, you know, checked out of their own body. So it's interesting to understand these principles. There are things that we can do to help, though. There is, um, you know, you know, things like self-help tips and stuff like calming the emotional storm and getting them into a spot where they can maybe receive some help. Learning how to control the impulsivity and the and the uh, tolerate the you know the distress. And um, there are therapists that specialize in this, and so you can do things like DBT therapy, this didactical behavioral therapy, and some some focused therapy and. 
And uh, don't count on medications to cure this because what I found is that you find a therapist that you feel safe with and that therapist has to understand that there are significant issues within the borderline personality disorder relationship, even on a therapeutic level, because if you get a therapist that's a little bit emotionally based, they may take this as maybe some problems um, with them and not you know, the issue of a borderline. So it's kind of an interesting thing. And the last one I see quite frequently um, as a common diagnosis and co-occurring diagnosis is the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or the ADHD. ADHD is often uh, diagnosed within children and young adults and is characterized by the inability to focus, maybe some impulsiveness, maybe some hyperactive behaviors. Typically, those who are concerned with uh, with um, stimulants and those kind of things need to look at medications that are non-stimulus, but there are a lot of things that can be done. In fact, there's quite a bit that can be done without medication too. This is a very common diagnosis with individuals in addiction. Now, the funny thing about some of these things that I want you listeners to understand is that I've noticed trends with people, and what I've noticed is that when people come in to get help um, and we ask them and I ask them what their drug of choice is, I can kind of drill down and find what this co-occurring disorder is by the substances they've choose to use. So, for instance, if I see someone that comes in with a methamphetamine habit, you know, that, that means that they're the bigger, better, faster, stronger type. They want to be noticed. They want to be focused. They want to do things. They want to be the life of the party. They want to be able to talk without having a lot of, of uh, doubt. And it's kind of an interesting thing. It doesn't always start off by being something bad. A lot of time they're self-medicating some of the attention deficit. But the problem is... Once you have that diagnosis is can you throttle back the medication to the point where you can get help from it when you're when you have been so used to just kind of like over medicating yourself with illicit substances. So if I see someone who's, who's using marijuana or alcohol, um, classic depression, looking at the bipolar, I'm seeing, okay, so, you know, by, you know alcohol is a depressant. So uh, I can kind of see that these guys have some depression in the family. And once we start to address the, the core issue of the addiction, you know, uh, you know, cause again, the substance use, the drinking, the using of drugs, um, that's just a symptom of the deeper problem. So if I see and can understand what they're using, well, then we start can figure out kind of where we begin. So someone using, again, alcohol, marijuana, depressants, I can look at that and say, all right, well, let's start looking at depression and finding out what's going on there, which is interesting. A lot of people don't want to take antidepressant medication and whatnot, but they are very okay with drinking and using. So it's kind of a funny thing. It's kind of a hurdle we have to sometimes get over. The number one thing you can do to overcome depression, exercise. Team Addict Athlete happens to know something about that. So talk to me if you want more information, right? Um, but things like um, like if people are using Xanax and some people are using some of the, the barbiturates and some of those anti-anxiety medications, I look at them having experienced severe trauma. Same thing with opiates. Something truly hurts. It could be physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. Something hurts. We find the opiates. It solves all those problems. There we go. So a lot of these patterns and whatnot you can see, but more often than not, dual diagnosis treatment is is needed. One-on-one counseling works. I find that cognitive behavioral therapy works great with these and other you know, co-occurring disorders. Um, you know, CBT is a type of therapy that teaches the individual to change their behaviors and reactions by focusing on the way their thoughts, their beliefs, their attitudes directly affect their behaviors. And so by changing the way they think, the person can change their behaviors and uh, effectively recover from their addiction and substance use. 
And a lot of times we use this without you even realizing it within Addict to Athlete. So support groups are huge with these kind of things. We see this a lot with Addict to Athlete. In fact, there will be times when you will see people on the page start to do some intense things. You'll see them maybe lash out, be aggressive, point out flaws, and and try to start you know stirring some stirring the pot, so to speak. Take it in stride. Understand that these are people that also have some co-occurring issues and, and disorders, and sometimes it sneaks through. And sometimes people push away the things that they love because they are kind of in a mindset of they don't deserve it, or maybe they have, they feel that they've been misjudged or misread. So a lot of times these support groups suffer because sometimes they get pushed through um, some of the uh, the co-occurring disorders and symptoms that someone's exhibiting. Um, I take it in stride. I want you guys to understand that no one's perfect, that everyone has problems. Um, it's, uh, it's up to us to kind of understand and know the person for who they are, not for some of the things that they do. There are other things that work well with these. Obviously, the uh, MAT, Medicated Assisted Therapy, by using certain medications to manage the symptoms that are associated with some of these mental health disorders. An individual can begin managing these problems without the use of alcohol or illicit drugs. Um, MAT may be used to help individuals manage withdrawal symptoms. Um, you, we, we talked about this in the past. It's kind of one of those things where I hope your attitudes are shifting on this because about harm reduction is kind of what it's all about. And, you know, more often than not, if you feel that your loved one, yourself, or someone else is experiencing any of these issues, whether it be specifically addiction-related or any of these, uh, you know, co-occurring disorders, reach out. Um, again, Coach Blue here has his own private therapy, uh, you know, that, that we do. Um, we can help find uh, other people that can help if, if needs be. Um, but this team offers a lot of support and a lot of awareness. And I am so thankful that we have the background that we have in mental health and addiction recovery to give it to you. I've seen a lot of programs that have popped up that are just some people that want to help, and that's great. They don't have the clinical backgrounds that we have, and so there's a little bit of limitations that they provide. We have these tools for you, the athletes of Team Addict Athlete, for your friends and your families to take to take up and uh, to maybe get some more information. I wanted to do this podcast specifically because I have been getting quite a bit of outreach and uh, some questions about loved ones suffering with certain issues that they wanted more information on. And believe me, this is just the the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of what I see as very common occurring disorders along with addiction recovery. So that being said, listeners, I hope this has found its way into uh, your hearts. I hope that you understand. Maybe share this with, with someone that may be struggling so they understand a little bit more. If you have questions, you can reach out to us through our social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, uh, all, all the great platforms, Instagram, shoot, even TikTok. We're around. Jump on our website. You can find all of our contact information on addicttoathlete.org. Again, with all the cool things that are associated there. Um, I want to give a special shout out and thanks to Radio Ronin and the Radio Ronin Network for all they do for Team Addict to Athlete. Go check them out. You got Chunga, you got Panda, you've got Chandler, and you've got Josh. They do great Radio Ronin content. Funny, helps get you out of your mood. Um, I listen to them faithfully two times a week. You got Greg's new guide to music. Uh, he is a great uh, asset to, to Radio Ronan. Greg's Guide to New Music is one of my favorite podcasts because he opens up doors to all kinds of new music that you may not even be aware of that's out there. 
And Greg's music choice is very eclectic. I think he's got something for absolutely everyone. And I don't think I've met anyone that has more knowledge on music than than uh, than Greg. So go check out Greg's Guide to New Music and uh, and all the other podcasts that uh, are within the Radio Ronan family. And athletes, again, I hope this has been beneficial for you. It's not meant to, to throw a stigma or to place a wedge. It's there to give you the education that you need to help you turn your mess into a very powerful message.